So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time was Kinship in Coltoom, which was me telling you all about how my protagonist Vo and her new best friend, Tiravem, meet, then get sucked into a kind of unintentional adventure. This time around, I'll be telling you how I outlined and figured out and researched and all that good stuff, an intentional adventure with those two called Sacred Thievery. But before I do that, I just want to take a moment to give a big thank you to Mike Harrington, the newest Patreon patron of the show, bringing us one step closer to the next sort of fundraising goal where I will be able to afford to cover the cost of software necessary for me to transcribe this program, making it more accessible for others. Thanks again, Mike. Okay, Sacred Thievery. What's that about? Well, Kinship in Coltoom was one of two of the stories I have planned for this part of the book that had a fairly direct point of influence to, like, one story by Fritz Leiber, you know, about Fafnir Grey Mouser. This is the other one. As the last one was rooted very much in Ilmet in Langmar, this one began, at least, as rooting itself very deeply in Lean Times in Langmar. This is one of a few things I'll be talking about today, which could easily be the entire episode if I let them. So let me just say that Lean Times in Langmar is one of my absolute favorite stories starring Fafford and Grey Mouser, and I would argue it is the funniest story starring Fafford and Grey Mouser. It's uh, an escalating farce that begins with the two heroes being kind of on the outs with each other, and it makes fun of religion and how money gets involved with religion and all that kind of stuff, and is ultimately about the healing of the friendship. Now for my story, which eventually got the holding title Sacred Thievery, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, kind of like the last one, the outlining took a while, and it actually has almost a structure unto itself. So here we enter act one of me outlining Sacred Thievery, where I knew, even though I would occasionally feel a tug in my heart about this, I wasn't setting out to make a copy of Lean Times and Lankmar, and that I had a list of certain elements of Lean Times and Lankmar that I loved, which I would try and include in this story, but including them in the story could not be the ultimate goal. Maybe I'll play with some of those elements in other stories, maybe I'll never play with them. You can't get hung up on, well, like I said, I'm, I'm not trying to write a pastiche here, I'm trying to write my own thing, but take an inspiration from Lean Times and Lankmar. So, after rereading Lean Times in Lankmar and taking notes as I did so, my first thing I wrote down in my little notebook here was like, so it's not that we want to go on about religion in our, you know, Coltoom, our Lankmar, but it would be fun to play around with greed and faith. Our heroes being on the outs with each other in the very next story from when they become pals, also a hint that their friendship is doomed perhaps, and tell a funny, steadily escalating farce. From here, I started brainstorming about what else people have faith in, and you know, greed, and how those two can intertwine. Next time I'm thinking about money, I'm thinking about real estate. I may live in a major North American city here. I was going to say Toronto, but honestly, every major North American city right now is kind of buggered when it comes to owning a home and how we use our land. Haha, <laughs> capitalism. I then spent a couple of pages briefly outlining something that would involve essentially very on-the-nose satires of both the housing market in Toronto slash major North American cities and NFTs slash Bitcoin kind of things, really more Bitcoin. The Bitcoin parody was grounded in more supernatural elements because it was this idea of money that doesn't really exist. And the terribly busted housing market side of things was also going to be a scam wherein this sort of vaguely late antiquity, early medieval period city-states ruling class learns way ahead of the timeline uh, that we've lived in how to treat buildings as commodities, much like gold or grain. The general idea was to have Vo caught up in one scam, Tiravam caught up in the other as they sort of compete, but then the scams would become intertwined, escalating to a farce whose ending would result in the people of Coltoom having to, well, all the living people, having to completely abandon the city, cross, you know, a river or whatever, and build more or less a copy. 
<laughs> of the original directly across from the original Cold Tomb, now only inhabited pretty much by the ghosts of past rulers and nobility of Cold Tomb. And the general idea I was exploring with Vo and Teravan's relationship was can it survive a fight? And the answer being yes in this case. Now I still love this story idea and who knows, maybe I'll cannibalize it, rejigger it, use it elsewhere with different characters in a different setting. We'll find out in the future, I'm sure. But I found myself thinking increasingly, I don't know if this fits. This feels kind of like I'm blundering into Terry Pratchett territory. Now, I like Terry Pratchett. I'm just saying it's not what I'm going for with this book and that this story doesn't really match the tone of the book as a whole or even really the lighter tone of this section of the book. For those who aren't familiar, the aspect of Terry Pratchett's writing that I'm thinking of here is how he would sometimes have very direct analogs of like fantasy stuff to things from our world. Like, I can't remember the story anymore, but there was definitely one where there was something akin to the internet that used a huge network of tall poles and semaphore flag maneuvering, if I remember correctly. Anyway, perfectly lovely stuff, but it doesn't really fit sword and sorcery in my mind, and it certainly doesn't fit what I'm going for with this book, so I had to move on. So I reviewed with myself, you know, what do I absolutely want? Do I, I want comedy? I want Vo and Tiravam on the outs, then slowly getting back together. And I want a steady escalation to a funny climax that feels both surprising and earned. And then I very quickly felt even more lost. Now, I started this particular story outlining on October 1st, 2021. Here is a small project diary entry I wrote on October 23rd, 2021. It reads as follows. I feel a little lost and behind. The latter because I spent so much time outlining, but not yet naming, the first Vo and Tiravam story, that became Kinship and Coltoom, as well as spending time on our unnamed short story that I would like to try and eventually submit to magazines. The former because there isn't a clear progression from the first to last Vo and Tiravam story, and I'm not sure how fluid I want to be either with tone or my approach to magic. Do I risk alienating readers by indulging myself? Do I risk boring them by hewing too tightly to genre conventions, etc.? Does it matter if I set out to write a sword and sorcery story but wind up with something that deviates? Can I have my housing bubble Bitcoin farce without anybody yelling at or ignoring me? Would it help to bring it all back to character? Is it change I need to model, or do I just need to see Vo and Teravim as they already are? Perhaps typing up and printing out side by side on two sheets of paper everything I know about them so far. Hmm. Right, that was the diary entry from October 23rd, and you can hear I was really unsure about what the heck I was doing. <laughs> so I did some unrelated research, kind of just kept coming back to my original notes and noodling around and trying to figure out like what's the key to unlock this thing and then I got really lucky when my partner and I were talking about the story and she was like well so you know thievery religion is maybe involved as well right it was involved in the story that inspired you have you ever heard about furta sacra and I was like no and then she made me aware of a book that basically was like the clue that busts the case wide open bringing us into act two of my outlining this story. So, Furta Sacra, Thefts of Relics in the Central Middle Ages, is a slim academic text by Patrick J. Geary. It's a very well-written book, actually. I was rather impressed by how it balanced itself between remaining very informative and specific, but also very readable. There are many different variations on how this goes, but a basic account of a Furta Sacra, a sacred thievery, would be like a monk or other cleric would go on a pilgrimage, stop in a town where rests the body of a saint, then they might become impressed by what they've heard of the saint, and become determined to steal the body or body part for their own community. They might then wait until night, enter the church, and exhort the saint to come with them, because to them the saint is very much living, right? Or essentially operating in the realm of the living. Then break open the tomb, take the relic, and hurry home where the new saint is greeted by a joyful throng of the faithful. And, here's a detail that stuck with me, sometimes this will be justified by how run down and unused the saint's church is, or how it is perhaps uh, under threat from natural disaster or warfare. Something that would be really bizarre for modern readers of this book, and including myself, is the almost universal approval of contemporaries who heard of these thefts. Far from condemning them as aberrations or as sins against the fellow Christians from whom the saints were stolen, most people apparently praised them as true works of Christian virtue, and communities often boasted of their successful thefts. People would even say, you know, if a relic had to be stolen, then it must have been worth having. And often the story of the theft would increase the value of the relic. 
A few other facts that caught my eye was how thefts were not at random. You know, they were done as a particular moment of crisis intervention, basically, when, you know, as I say, of warfare, uh, volcanoes, whatever. And relics were perceived as the living saint. And thus, the theft is really a ritual kidnapping. One more thing I'll mention before I carry on is that relics do not carry intrinsic meaning. You need to pair a relic with an inscription or iconographic representation of the saint, a document testifying to authenticity, or a tradition, oral or written, which identifies this particular object with a specific individual or at least a specific type of individual, i.e. a saint. This could be broken by a disaster or theft separating relic from the giver of meaning. Then a new symbolic function had to be assigned, a function that had its origin in the society in which it was to be venerated. So where it was being stolen to be taken to had to create the new meaning, the new narrative around the relic. Well, we've got a lot of storytelling here, don't we? We've got the story of the theft itself. We've got the story of why the relic matters and how a new story needs to be told when it is stolen and moved to a new place. And then I've got my two thieves, Vo, who was raised on legend of heroism that sent her off out into the world, and which she still very much remembers, and all the storytelling tropes of that, and her new best friend, Tiravam, a well-educated former noble who is an aspiring playwright. You can see why my eyes started to light up while I was reading through these early pages and finding these things I'm relating to you, but wait, it gets better. You see, since a relic's authenticity rested ultimately on human testimony, Characters who identify the remains of the saints regularly appear in the accounts of the thefts, the Fur de Sacra, right? Frequently, the only person who could serve as a link between the society from which the relic was stolen and its new society was the thief themselves, obviously a biased source. Hence the tales, the texts, you know, telling the tales of the theft often attempt to improve the thieves' credibility by extolling their virtues, their sanctity, their devotion to the particular saint. Often, too, the writers of these accounts would introduce individuals outside both communities who could appear as knowledgeable but unbiased observers able to inform the thief of the relic's location and identity. Now, I ended up fiddling with that detail a little bit in terms of the chronology. I'll get into more later. But I love that idea of an outsider being brought in. You know, they're not from where the saint was stolen. They're not from where the saint was taken to. They have knowledge that can make this whole thing seem okay. And what does sword and sorcery usually have? Outsider protagonists. Bo and Tiravan both are not from Coltum, and they are not going to be from where this saint they're going to steal is resting when the story begins. At this point, I've barely cracked open the book Furta Sacra and all the wonderful research it has further detailing this whole thing that I'm telling you about, this thing that is another item that could take up the entire episode if I let it. But I am feeling galvanized, you know, I've got religion, I've got theft, I've got storytelling, I myself can bring in those other items I want, you know, comedy, having the characters being on the outs and coming back together over the course of the story, and an escalating farce. So for the next half dozen pages in my notebook, I kind of alternate between having further research notes from the book on the left-hand side and a kind of very rough brainstormy outlining stuff on the right-hand side. In the past, I might have actually said, okay, hang on, Oliver, just, you know, finish going through the whole book first, but the ideas were coming too fast. I had to get them down, and I wanted them all unified in this one notebook. So I do that thing I like to do when I want to make myself stop and go, okay, what's happening here? I write, so in big capital letters in the middle of one line at the top of a page, and then I'm like, uh, so, Vo and Tiravem are perhaps hired by a church in Coltum to hide among a pilgrimage to X, you know, a place where a relic lay. The church wants that relic, so the pilgrims and the money slash reputation they bring will come to them, will come to Coltum instead. Then I try to establish a sequence of events roughly, so I put, but simply one, grabbing the pelvis of St. Elvis or whatever, and bringing it back isn't enough. Two, the theft has to be justified. Three, the authenticity has to be maintained. And four, the new symbolic function has to be created in the new location, Coltum. What that means is like maybe in the old location, something happened that made them believe that the saint was protecting their crops. But then in Coltum, they've got to try and create a narrative where something new happens and they go, oh, that means the saint here is going to make us all very wealthy. Yes, he will look after our prosperity. Yes, okay, good. It's a good thing we have him here. And yeah, like Lord Byron saying it was better if he took the Elgin marbles from Athens while the Turks were bombarding it, and then coming up with new reasons to hold on to the marbles after. Maybe the barbarians I want Vo to join later in the next quarter of the book are a menace to the town holding the relic, but have been kept at bay just fine 
until Vo or Tiravan opens the gates at an inopportune moment. When it comes to the whole trial of authenticity later and deciding, you know, does the saint really want to be in Coltum, Vo could be put up as a fake expert, not from around here, right? Not from where the relic came from. And she could have the onerous task of doing all kinds of religious and local historical homework to be able to answer questions and be like, yeah, this makes sense. This tracks the saint wanted to move to Coltum. Now, Vo and Tiravam need to work together closely for this thing, but it's important for the trial of authenticity to help make, you know, Vo not appear biased, that Vo and Tiravam, you know, make it look like they don't really know each other, which comes back to my whole Lean Times and Lankmar thing that I liked, starting with the two characters being on the outs. Maybe in my story, they're not on the outs, but they have to kind of pretend they don't know each other, even though they've been best friends running around doing lots of other thieving for several months since my previous story, Kinship and Coltoom. So we're going to have Vo having to pretend to be a religious and historical expert, while Vo and Tiravam are going to have to pretend to not know each other, despite being best buddies who've been thieving around town for months, and Tiravam who's going to be the thief, will also go the extra mile by pretending to be a recent convert of the church, specifically the church, you know, temple in Coltoom. So already we have some pretty good lies that our characters are going to have to try and maintain in a courtroom situation, which I think is a great place for farce. For those who haven't had to think hard about what the word farce means in a while, and to be fair, neither had I, Wikipedia defines farce as... <laughs> God help me. A comedy that seeks to entertain the audience through situations that are highly exaggerated, extravagant, ridiculous, absurd, and improbable. Farce is also characterized by heavy use of physical humor, the use of deliberate absurdity or nonsense, satire, parody, and mockery of real-life situations, people, events, and interactions, unlikely and humorous instances of miscommunication, ludicrous, improbable, and exaggerated characters, and broadly stylized performances. When I think of farce, I tend to think of the old series Blackadder, which I highly recommend. Any season will do, to be honest, though the first is weakest, as tends to happen with TV shows. So, as much as there will be a theft, there will be a courtroom scene defining this story, and in this courtroom scene, Higher religious authorities, I figure, should be brought from half a world away as the audience of this farce where Vo is passed off as a witness who doesn't know Tiravim, etc. A local judge would see through this sham in a heartbeat, but a gaggle of old, pious farts from a ways wouldn't. And the biggest authority, the quote-unquote Pope, will say for the moment here, saying that everything adds up in this story and blessing the church is the authenticity that the Coltoom Temple Church whatever seeks. But... The Pope, let's call him for now, whatever, the Pope is still a bureaucrat, so he doesn't endow the church with the money they need, perhaps. Miracles were very conveniently used to generate income, tells me the book, Virtus Sacra. So perhaps Vo and Tiravan then need to stage a miracle both for the local church to finish building, uh, you know, or finish renovations, whatever, and to be able to pay Vo and Tiravan. So that makes them a little more motivated to go the extra mile by faking a miracle. So in the courtroom, we have Vo, we have Tiravem, the expert, quote-unquote, and the thief who is supposedly a member of the local temple. Then we have the, quote-unquote, pope, perhaps with their retinue, serving as judge. Who else would we have? Well, we would have Vo and Tiravem's likely employer, the local sort of archbishop type of Coltoom, who wants the relic in their temple. And then other churches from nearby towns, well, they would want reflected glory from this whole thing, so their own religious leadership could come by to confirm miracles, uh, let's say, in exchange for the big church of Coltoom, including the veneration of the small town's saint, of whom they only have a toenail or whatever, in their calendar, putting the smaller village on the pilgrimage route and give over their own church repair funds, perhaps. Also, the smaller village might want a bishop of the big church to come and be the temple leader of the small village, bringing further prestige. This, in turn, could be a like status promotion for a small-time cleric from the big city of Coltoom, and it's a chance for Coltoom's big city temple to rid themselves of an undesirable monk, let's say. Now, I know that was a lot of information, but don't worry, I'm going to be kind of putting this together for both myself and for you as we go further. So yeah, with everything I've told you thus far, we enter November, November 2nd, and I'm thinking I have got the beginnings of a structure here. I can start really laying down the bones of this thing. I'm thinking... I want to write approximately a 5,000 word story and I've got sort of four corners to what's going to happen in that story. You know, number one, I'm going to have the pilgrimage, you know, Vo and Tiravan perhaps sneaking out of the finales of two other tales. I don't know, one of them sneaking out of a window from infidelity. Tiravan perhaps has pulled off some absurd theft and I just want to have them come out of that and run straight into this story. That'd be kind of fun. And they meet up because they have to
to get going if they're going to intercept the pilgrimage passing within however many miles of Coltum on their way to the saint where it currently resides, right? So that's the first quarter of the pilgrimage. The second quarter, therefore, logically would be the theft. And then the third quarter would be the trial to determine the authenticity and build the new narrative and da 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 da. And then finally, the last quarter could be the miracle in quotation marks. Really, it's volunteer. I'm trying to fake a miracle. Doing so perhaps resolves any last doubts about the saint wanting to be in that city, and the act itself inspires a great deal of generous giving from the public, which helps pay Voentirovem for this whole fiasco they've been hired to orchestrate in the first place. So, okay, sounds good. The pilgrimage, the theft, the trial, the miracle. Now I think I'm going to do that thing where I write down key terms and put a red square around them in my notebook. Uh, things like POV. The POV, the perspective, will be third-person limited on Vo and or Tiravim, depending on the scene. And I'll have this sort of quote-unquote archbishop in the background doing lots of scheming, so we want Vo or Tiravim to see just enough to intrigue readers, but not exposition at them. The tense will be passed, of course. The plot follows how the big and broke church of Coltum's, let's say, second biggest religion, a different one than the previous story, acquires and legitimizes a significant relic, using that to increase their wealth and influence. The story, however, is about Vo and Tiravem having to pretend they don't know each other and pull off a heist together to facilitate you know, the plot. This could also be the story of how they learn to really have faith in each other's abilities. Like, in the first story, you know, Kinship and Kultum, they learn they can trust each other, but trust and faith are two different things. So I reckon I'm going to establish up front that this is their first truly ambitious scheme, even if they've been thieving around for the last few months, following a bunch of, you know, simpler thefts taking place between the first story and this one. Good old Lean Times in Lankmar opens with a bit of narration about how the two guys of Avern and Grey Mouse are on the outs, so maybe this story could open with a bit of narration conveying how Vo and Tiravem have had to spend the last few months convincing the scene, the underground, in Coltum that actually they don't know each other. In essence, using lies to erase the story you would have read right before reading this one. This is where I will remind you that it's not just things like point of view and tense and plot and story and so on that I want to figure out when it comes to the stories where Tiravim is guesting as Vo's best friend. I also like the idea of each of them having a different romantic partner, or at least sexual partner, in each tale. I feel like it gives me a pair of wild cards I can slot in as needed. You know, at this point I'm thinking maybe to further complicate the trial, Tiravim is sleeping with a present church official, perhaps that archbishop, or perhaps maybe that sort of middling cleric that could wind up getting horse-traded to go lead the temple in the smaller rival village that initially disputes the claim of the relic wanting to be in Coltum. I like that, especially because Tiravem is having to pass themselves off as a recent recruit of the church to further make the theft, you know, kosher, as it were. And because then, of course, this religion, which I have barely done any thoughts on what the heck the religion is or what their beliefs are, just don't need to, to be honest at this point. But this suggests to me that they should have a vow of chastity, <laughs> making it super not okay that this sleeping around is happening, aside from how it would, of course, present even further evidence of bias in the trial. And because what I'm looking to create here is a real potboiler of a situation with all kinds of different tensions interacting and building on each other and, you know, having a kind of farcical comedy, an over-the-top thing, I also think maybe on top of that vow of chastity, maybe members of the temple don't have to be hot. But if they are just blindingly attractive, then the vow of chastity is seen as an even greater sacrifice, thus elevating them in the church, meaning that, yeah, it tends to be hotties at the higher end of the temple, <laughs> making it even harder for Tiravem to hide their attraction to the archbishop, let's say, while they're on the stand in the trial. Mm, yeah, I like how this plays into what I feel is a fundamental law of the universe, which is that horny is great for funny. So who is Vo's partner in this whole thing? Uh, it could be someone who could help facilitate the quote-unquote miracle, but they won't help if they know Vo was slash is sleeping with somebody else, maybe? That noble whose windows she's sneaking out of at the start? Hmm... Yeah, ah, well, like I say, it's a wild card. I can figure it out later, but I've got something there I can use. So, okay, what about theme? What about thematic statement? You know, what are some basic ideas this thing is centered around and what is it saying? Well, the theme could very well be that trust and faith are two different things. You know, various pairings of characters could have one or the other in their counterpart, but only Vo and Tiravem both trust each other and, over the course of the story, learn to have faith in the other's ability. I appreciate I may sound very confident when I am telling you these things, but in the moment, not always. You know, on the page I literally wrote in the next line, uh, in my notebook, does that work? 
<laughs> and then I felt compelled to go and look up the difference between faith and trust to make sure that I had my head screwed on tight enough here. Faith is a belief that is not based on proof, a belief with no supportive evidence. Okay, I knew that. Trust is something that is based on past experience. Aha, okay. So, Vaux and Teravim largely trust each other to like be good buddies, be cool, be there for each other. But because they're still early in their friendship, still early in their thieving careers with each other, they are still having to operate more on faith when it comes to knowing the other one will be able to do X, Y, and Z. So yeah, this sort of the end of their friendship, etc. In order to function as a team, they have to learn how to have faith in each other along the way. This needs to cause conflict, uh, I feel. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Or opportunities to learn other things. So the thematic statement, what is this story saying with all its faith and trust and blah, blah, blah in it, could simply be that faith in other people matters more than spiritual faith. While I'm figuring out these nuts and bolts things here of theme, thematic statement, you know, who the romantic partners are, POV, blah, 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 I am thinking a lot about how I could maybe have more magic in my sword and sorcery stories for this novel so far, but also how I really like when there's an ambiguity about whether or not there was magic. So above where I'm figuring out theme, etc., I make a note in the margins about, you know, what if I have fun with the idea of the saint wanting to be stolen? Maybe at the very end, their remains are put beside another saint who was their past lover. And therefore, the reader is left wondering, oh, wait, hang on a minute. Maybe everything that's happened in the story up to this point, including the quote unquote fake miracle, maybe even the quote unquote fake miracle is a real miracle because it was all being guided by the hand of this saint so it could find its way back to a person who it had had a secret, not kosher, like I say, there's the chastity in this temple love affair with back when they were both fully formed alive people as opposed to let's say golden crusted entombed you know literal one hand and one eyeball or whatever okay we're almost at the end of act two of three of my outlining the story sacred thievery after i made that magic note i was like okay well what's the trajectory we might have here what's the basic shape of the story i kind of doodled that out and part of me thinking about trajectory is like how could the ending mirror the beginning is there a fun way we can do that that won't feel ham-fisted and then I thought, hey, awesome, I know what. If we're going to have this ending showing one relic put beside the other, perhaps they could be in like little arched niches in the wall of the temple, right? Maybe we can mirror that with the very beginning where we have Vo and Tiravem sneaking out of windows that are side by side, high arched windows. Two buddies at the beginning, two dead former lovers at the end, both framed in high narrow arches, two people coming out of them at the beginning, and two dead people being put in them at the end. I could even be cheeky with the dialogue and further underline it by having, you know, when Vo pops out of the window and spots Teravim, or no, let's do it the other way around. Teravim pops out and spots Vo sitting on the window's ledge of the window beside their window, quote unquote, and is like, hey, we're supposed to be staying away from each other. Well, couldn't that line of them, you know, saying that to Vo at the beginning, because yeah, they're supposed to be passing off the farce that they don't know each other. At the end, you could almost imagine that line of dialogue being said by one saint to the other, but it's like, yeah, it's okay, you guys are dead, you can actually be together again now. So okay, at this point I'm feeling pretty good, and I decide now I can relax a little bit and pull back and just focus on finishing reading the book for Sacra, combing it for useful research and bits and pieces, you know, that I could maybe use in this story that's already taking a pretty good shape in my head. So I do that, and then on November 25th I think, okay, I'm feeling pretty good about this story, which to me is often a sign that I need to take a step back and check myself. What's left? that I need to figure out. And I make a little list, you know, I'm like, okay, well, there's a few specifics for the religion beyond their very Christian-like saint situation, vows of chastity and hot priests equal greater sacrifice thing. I also want to really make sure I choose who hires Voluntarven precisely. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the archbishop type figure in the temple, but, you know, confirm Voluntarven's roles in the scheme and their romantic partners, figure out the details of the saint and the relic that holds, you know, the saint's body part. What body part is it even? Details of the court scene, right? The authenticity of the relic, what's going on here scene. Details of the miracle, quote-unquote. Maybe a rough cast list wouldn't hurt, including their various wants and the obstacles between them and what they want. And maybe I'll even do the sort of prompt tables that I have mentioned many times before in this podcast when I've been outlining a story. For example, the lists of things that are not conflict, but are still really important to stories, like relating, finding, losing, bearing, discovering, parting, and changing. Types of conflict, you know, contrary opinions, struggle against circumstances, internal conflict, avoiding a negative conflict, lack of info, dilemma, 
And, you know, the Brian Murphy Sword and Sorcery checklist I love so much. Dark and Dangerous Magic, Personal and Mercenary Motivations, Horror slash Lovecraftian Influences, Short Episodic Stories Inspired by History. Hell yes on that one for this story, eh? Outsider Heroes. And, uh, you know, why don't I try and figure out the damn title? I say to myself at this point. <laughs> So yeah, on the next two pages, I lay those things out. Remember, however, I see those lists as prompts, like writing prompts, not Mad Libs forms that I absolutely have to fill out every single slot on. Though, with Brian Murphy's Sword and Sorcery checklist, I want to make sure I got at least three or four of those items, otherwise maybe it doesn't feel so much like Sword and Sorcery. I also throw down a few first cracks at a title for this thing before I eventually reach the point of why don't I just call it Sacred Thievery. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the opposite page, I collate and organize a whole bunch of the stuff I have been telling you about. Perspective, tense, trajectory, focus of the story, theme, thematic statement, plot and story, Bo and Teravem's friendship, what's the deal with that in this story, how does it develop or whatever, Bo and Teravem's relationships, what's going on there, as I've told you. It's good to do this at the end of, as I say, act two of me outlining this because it's just, yeah, you, you can do all kinds of pages and notes that maybe you don't have to look at them for six months or a year even, and then when you come back... You don't know what the hell is what. Now, because I've done this, luckily I can you know, find a summary of all my notes and everything I've told you so far in just these couple of pages and get back up to speed a lot quicker. Summarizing and organizing what you've got so far at points that feel logical for you to do so can also help you come up with new ideas as having to you know, condense and re-explain essentially all this stuff back to yourself may spark the old noggin. Although in this case, it did not. <laughs> so the final push beginning on November 26th of 2021, this very year. <laughs> what was that line reading? I have plainly been listening to too much Matt Berry. Anyway, yeah, I began the final push, which was to write a detailed long form. Okay, I'm going to stop doing the Matt Berry thing. A detailed long form outline. So, okay, let's run through it, putting all these elements together. We open on two tall arched windows on the side of a grand, you know, five whole stories block of apartments for visiting nobles, local figures of power, etc. The local figures of power like to use unoccupied rooms for secret liaisons, and a couple of shameful sheet partners are sneaking out simultaneously, one for each window, Bo on the left, and Tiravam on the right. Tiravam is surprised by Vo's presence. Vo, however, is not surprised as they heard Tiravam's cries in the nights, complimenting them on their wild abandon. The other person sounded like they were having a good time too, Vo says. Yes, well, the high priest has all that practice projecting to the back rows. Damn it, we're not supposed to be seen together, Tiravam replies. Who'd be looking up this high? Besides, it's been nearly three months. I miss chatting with you, Vo says. You'll see me in a couple of hours, by the, you know, you know where, Tiravam says. Yes, yes, I know, Vo replies. And then they sneak away left and right. Now, I have a side note here. Perhaps I'll work in something about Tiravam just straight up saying to Vo, you know, like, I trust you, but I'm just not sure if I have faith in your studies. Then the less educated Vo maybe insists, like, what's the difference between trust and faith? And maybe that's ham-fisted dialogue I'll leave out. All right, moving on. Next scene. Entering the scene, one from the left, one from the right, one from the city. I'm thinking Tiravam. One from a little further into the wilderness, the sort of deserty scrub I'm imagining, is Vo, who was early because they are impatient. As listeners of this show may recall, that impatience means that they're already there because they have gone and found the pilgrim costumes that the pair of them had stashed behind a tree. I'm thinking perhaps in particular they meet under an empty gibbet, gibbet, whatever, that hanging cage that people get stuck in and left as a warning to others traveling along the road, in this case the road leading into Coltoom. It's a fun bit of foreshadowing for the final story of Act 2 of my whole novel here, The Gibbet, but foreshadowing nods and winks are not enough. They have to serve a purpose in the moment, and honestly, in this moment, it could be a little thing, you know, where Vo's like, we better pull this off or we'll be the next generation of roadside greeters, you know, in hanging in this cage, right? It's worth reminding you that you may have just had me explain all the backstory for this thing, but people who are going to pick up the book for the first time and read this story, I want them to only know as much as they absolutely have to moving along through this tale so that it is hopefully more intriguing. This, therefore, serves the purpose of establishing that there are some real stakes here. These two are going to get killed if they don't pull this thing off. Whatever this thing is that requires them to pretend that they are pilgrims and to have kept away from each other for the past three months and so on and so forth. Though then spots what could be a long line of people on the horizon passing perpendicularly 
to Coltoom. It was at this point that I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could learn some interesting factoids and things and bits and pieces and details to weave into this if I knew a little bit more about pilgrims. Well, luckily for me, my partner is someone with a PhD in medieval art history, so I asked to raid their library and found The Pilgrim's Guide by William Melkzer. No need to go into detail here, let me just say that it did give me some pretty good material including the exact costume that most pilgrims wore, which I then dressed Vo and Tiravem in. So then Vo and Tiravem, dressed in their costumes, slip in to join the pilgrimage. I make a little side note here about how pilgrims also carried news, tall tales, gossip, etc. Maybe Vo is enthralled by some of this. And overhearing things could be a fun way to set up stuff later in this story or just have little easter eggs for people who would go on to read other stories further in the book or have read the previous ones and maybe there's ripple effects of things from those stories that she was in in the first act that we hear little murmurs of here. I don't know. It's just one of those little places where I know that as a writer I can have a bit of fun. So yeah, perhaps there is an overheard debate over the top saints and who they are and this is, could establish the target saint, the one that they're off to steal as best. And the nearest competitor to, you know, that saint being another town, village, whatever, and little mini saint near Coltoom, and establish also that Coltoom is lacking major saints. So yeah, a little bit of exposition through the extras here. Why not? Maybe this happens at a spring where people often rest before proceeding either to Coltoom or elsewhere, such as onto this other village where the saint is that Bo and Tervem want to steal. Bo and Tervem appreciate the escape from hierarchy and abandoned pilgrims as well, because they are a motley, varied crew but none of them are over five foot ten. So the lanky and beefy, respectively, Tiravam and Vo, both over six foot, despite their costumes, immediately stand out. This is another place where I make a quick side note about how at some point I'm going to want to decide if this religion that has these saints that Vo and Tiravam are messing about with, is it patriarchal? Is it matriarchal? Is it, you know, even Stevensy? How, do, how does it feel about gender? I don't know. But riffing off the Christianity of the period that I'm doing all my research from here, it would be patriarchal, and women would generally not be allowed to come along on pilgrimages unless they were accompanied by a husband. So perhaps we get a little mini farce here where Chiravem tries to pass themselves off as Vo's husband and themselves as a married couple, getting a few little jokes about that, whatever. Vo's matriarchal religious background would make this patriarchal religion hard to suffer, further making the scene tense as we essentially have a mock trial of the pilgrims trying to determine whether or not they can let Vo and Tiravem travel with them on to the final destination. However this goes, I like the idea of getting to the point that the pilgrims seem on the verge of rejecting Vo and Tiravem when bandits seeking easy prey ride up. Vo puts a throwing axe in the head of one, scaring off the rest and earning passage with the pilgrim company. One rich pilgrim, maybe because, you know, like I say, there's not a lot of hierarchy and sometimes you would get rich pilgrims traveling in carriages alongside a bunch of broken down serfs. Like the one rich pilgrim could complain that the pilgrimage guide he carries had promised that soldiers were stationed here to protect them. Meanwhile, the rest of the busted ass old serfs are like, eh, sure, okay. They see the value of having Vo and Teravan with them now, regardless of their beliefs or what have you. And then, just so future Oliver, when he reviews this, really gets it, I have a line of dialogue I will probably never use where the sort of head pilgrim says, you know, don't know if I have faith in them, but I trust their capacity for violence. <laughs> Get that theme in there. Now, I could insert a travel scene, but for now, I see no purpose to do so other than pedantry, which is not a good reason. So cut to, as I'm going to keep saying, I guess here, cut to the gates of the town of what am I going to call it? Uh, how about uh, the town? of Melkzer, like William Melkzer, who wrote The Pilgrim's Guide. Yes, yes, uh, maybe I'll rearrange the letters and fart around with it, but for now, that's the name. Why not? The Gates of the Walls Around the Town of Melkzer. A lengthy liturgy is given as the pilgrims are fleeced at the doorway by the local priests. Vo gives her a coin begrudgingly, then is distracted by how attractive the priests are, Tiravan dreamily agrees, explaining the whole vow of chastity thing I've described earlier to you. They make a point of touching the priest's fingers as they're handed their pilgrimage certificates, which is something that existed. You know, you get one proof that you made the big journey, right? Once handed a certificate, they may pass through the town gates. Bo hangs around as much as possible, studying them, but is soon hurried along, leaving the gate open too long clearly makes the locals nervous. 
and the guards slash watch whatever scan the horizon intently. Side note, I like the idea of each pilgrim bringing a brick for the walls to effect repairs or whatever. So I made that little note in the margin here. Anyway, they quickly pass through the town, or maybe not so quickly. Maybe it's going to be a lengthy procession. Yeah, let's have a lengthy procession down the one big main street of the town, past groups of citizens practicing with spears. Interesting. To the only grand structure in the town, other than maybe the walls, the temple. This is a pretty backwards place with little sign of any other sources of income than religion. The temple has one grand cylinder, or maybe it's a dome, or maybe it's an octagon. I don't know. Don't care right now. But whatever it has, the temple in Khaltum will have six. And it is into that part that the pilgrims are led. I will briefly describe the relic as Vo and Turavim are led to it, Vo and Turavim paying close attention to the layout of the temple, though only one of them will be returning to it. It was at this point I broke to do a half page of just riffing notes on the people of Melkzer. I figure they're poor, they're braced for barbarian attack, they're very faithful, they show devotion perhaps to the saint, which I at this point decided the relic was going to be the sort of forearms or arms of the saint. So maybe they show devotion by wearing elbow length, long yellow dyed gloves with exposed forearms and hands being considered obscene. And uh, arguably, I say they worship the saint as much as or more than their god, which is perhaps another justification for the sacred thievery. They will look like bumpkins to Tiravam, who may comment as such. I'm thinking I need to come up with a term for this, maybe a nice Homeric epithet, you know, the whole this-that way of playing around with words, like the classic wine-dark sea. Maybe Tiravam refers to them as the sort of, I don't know, dirt lovers. I'll think of something better later, but point is I like the idea of her having a specific nickname. Vo, however, sees them as something between Coltum and her homeland, right? She's from a tiny little island. This is not so bumpkin-y to her. Will I need to know more about the people of Melkzer? Eh, I don't think so at this point, but I left a couple of lines empty on the page in that section in case I think of something cool down the road. So yes, after another chat with my medievalist trained partner, I decided to make the relic, the remains of the saint, a pair of arms, maybe cut off at the elbows or the shoulders, I haven't decided, but no matter what, definitely encased in gold and engraved and maybe even having some gems and stuff on them, and they could be hooked up so that they could sort of caress anyone who comes up to approach them. And so I want to have Vo and Tiravam each have their own reactions to being caressed by Saint So-and-so, noticing how the fingertips have been worn down by countless pilgrims past. On the way out, Tiravam checks that Vo is good for her part tomorrow. Vo is a little salty, then Tiravam points out it's less heroic, quote-unquote, than what she got up to before coming to Coltum. Once again, I beat the drum of them having to try and have a little faith in each other. From here, we cut to Vo finding the weakest section of the town walls, identified by the pile of pilgrim bricks brought to replace the worn-ass ones already in place. Pulling out a chisel, Vo keeps to the shadows, and she does a, maybe a bump of cocaine to stay awake. I don't know, we'll see how we continue the drug thing from the previous story then begins weakening the mortar even further, using the pile of pilgrim bricks for cover. Eventually, having worked up a sweat, Bo looks skyward to keep it from falling into her eyes. Cut to Tiravam, long limbs straining to keep her in place in the high-domed ceiling of the temple, is angling her head so a drop of sweat runs into her mouth instead of down, 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 to potentially alert the hot priest who is praying to Saint So-and-so to protect the town from its enemies. To be praying so late, he must be nervous. Good. That means our information is likely correct, Tiravam thinks to herself. Sidebar, I'm doing it again because I imagine Tiravam as assigned female at birth. Uh, despite them being bigender, I tend to default to referring to them as he or she, but I haven't decided exactly how they're going to identify at various points in the story or if they'll identify the same way the whole way through or what. Started off thinking male, thinking female here. We'll see what happens. Double sidebar, I wrote here thinking, perhaps from this angle, Tiravam can see how the saint's arms are usually manipulated to caress those who pray. You know, what bullshit they might think. And this could in turn help maybe set up the finale where we arguably have a miracle, even though it's a fake one in quotation marks. And also maybe she thinks about everything she's learned in the weeks before this job, looks at Hot Priest and wonders about a simpler life. He seems more genuine than the toady types from her parents' court. Ah, but then there is this whole thing of the arms being manipulated by strings and gears or whatever. Anyway, the priest finally leaves and Tiravim can slip down, having been surprised earlier. By the way, the book on relics that I pilfered from my partner's bookshelf is called Strange Beauty by Cynthia 
Han, H-A-H-N, in case you were curious to go deeper on that. It was reading that book that gave me a few details and ideas which made me ultimately decide to make a pair of arms be the relic in this story. In particular, one sentence about how any important church had at least one arm reliquary, so I thought, okay, well, the big important church in Coltoon will want both these arms. Anyway, Tiravan wraps the arms carefully in oil skin, then places them in a pack tightly strapped to their back. Slipping beneath a pew near the door, she puts a bundled shirt under her head and closes her eyes, all beneath the gaze of various saints, the god, etc., etc., on wall murals and that kind of thing. I'm thinking it's kind of fun to cross-match, essentially, the image of the saints, etc., watching Tiravem close their eyes to fall asleep, and have a whole bunch of sheep in a pen near the area of the wall that Vo had been working, kind of watching Vo, who can't sleep. Maybe she's even wedged tightly between a pair of sheep that have sort of lounged up along either side of her for the body heat. Maybe I'm thinking too much that sheep are like cats? I don't think so. <laughs> I may play with the order of the following events, but this is basically what's going to happen to get us to the middle of the story. Very early, the temple doors will be opened by a pair of very attractive uh, beetles, B-E-A-D-L-E-S, or, you know, the equivalent thereof in this religion, basically lower tier church employees, monks, whatever, who maintain the holy site. Teravim had been told by their employer that a saintly procession down the main street, the same one the pilgrims walked up yesterday, would be starting early the following day, and they would want the relics for that. Though, meanwhile, is awoken by the town militia moving to the gates, crying out an alarm, startling the sheep to all corners of the pen as she does so. Vo gets up, leaps up, in fact. Unwrapping her mighty warhammer as she strides to the section of wall she weakened, Vo worries about opening it up, which is clear is what she's prepared to do. She's not a hero anymore. She's a thief, and she wants Tiravam to have faith in her. On the other hand, letting in the barbarians will cause death, including that, perhaps, of pilgrims that she's gotten to know. But if the barbarians don't get in, then the whole plan might fail. Staring intently, she taps the beak-shaped end of the hammer on the sole of her pilgrim shoes. Back to Tiravam, Tiravam slips past the beetles, only to be surprised by hot priests and two large beetles chosen for brawn over beauty, carrying an open chest clearly made for the arms. They're planning to move the saint to a safe location, as it turns out. I'm tempted to make this something of a reveal, if maybe earlier, you know, perhaps the pilgrims ask if the saint will be moved, and hot priest lies, saying, you know, the, 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 this saint will always be here for you, don't worry about that, ha 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 ha. This might reinforce my idea of a kind of a sub-theme of like, you know, Faith in organizations, not great. Faith in people that you care about and care about you, much better. So Tiravam books it, briefly leading a kind of parody of the previous day's religious procession of the pilgrims down, you know, Main Street in the opposite direction. One pilgrim, quote-unquote, leading several clergy in this case, as opposed to one priest leading many pilgrims the previous day. Tiravam ducks down an alley, hoping their faith in Vo is not misplaced. And, you know, I make a note here, maybe I can make this more of a set piece, you know, have Tiravam run over or through something we saw the day before, the barrels of hay, bales of hay, pardon me, that we often see in chase scenes, that kind of thing. Perhaps dodging sweeping spear points of militia getting ready to go up to the walls. In fact, this actually kind of makes me think of maybe like a very lateral Wes Anderson style tracking shot going back and forth up and down the main street. But anyway, Vo, meanwhile, is gritting her teeth. One practice swing to knock open the wall. Two practice swing to... Blammo! The gates, a quarter mile down from her, are blown apart by one, two, three great big boulders, pulping militia members, and the barbarians immediately start screaming. Just, uh, you know. <laughs> it is a fearsome slaughter, contrasting with Vo, who then sighs with relief as she no longer has a big moral decision to make. And then she starts swinging, because the heck with it, she still wants to go through the wall, so she starts knocking out the bricks. I like this for the humor of it all, and I also like it because I wasn't ready to make Vo so villainous as to willingly knock open some walls and sneak in some barbarians and facilitate the slaughter of the people of this town. Seems like it was going to happen anyway. Tiravam runs up behind Vo, looking down the length of the wall, is like, I thought they didn't have any catapults. Then looks back to Vo, kind of like, hurry up! <laughs> but there's a barbarian coming up along the wall toward them. And I, for some reason, just like the idea of Vo finding him attractive and then having her own moment of wondering about a simpler way of life 
as Teravim did with the priest. What if she was a barbarian? What if that's going to happen in the next quarter of the book? Shh, don't tell anybody. But yeah, anyway, Vo finds him attractive. Maybe he even gives her a wry smile when she finishes knocking a hole in the wall and pressing him with her strength. Vo and Tiravem then run through just in time for the people pursuing Tiravem to collide with the mighty barbarian. Vo and Tiravem glance back at the very different long line of travelers <laughs> coming through the gates compared to the ones who were passing through the previous day. Meanwhile, I think my initial idea was that the catapults were something that the archpriest of the Temple of Coltum actually sorted out for the barbarians to enable this whole thing to happen, to make sure that even if Vo had doubts about knocking you know, a smaller hole in the wall, that everything would still go according to plan. I don't know if I want to have that. That's pretty super villainous. I also know there's something else I want to do where I want to have Vo just keep forgetting things that she's supposed to remember until she remembers something very important at the very end of the story. So maybe here she just forgot the barbarians had a catapult or three, and this could further undermine Tiravam's faith in Vo and further set up that remembering the big thing in the finale. You know, how'd they get them? You know, uh, you know maybe Tiravam knows about the Archbishop supplying them. We'll see what happens. That's a, you know, a fuzzy bit for me right now. After this, again, the journey back, who cares, whatever, let's maybe have a single fun line about their return scaring the bandits again as they pass the, through the spring on the way back, a, a laugh line about the guards at the gates, I don't know, whatever. Then we get to the third quarter of this story, the trial. Up to this point, we've had schemes and scampering and bits and pieces all escalating to get to this point, which will be the main site of farce in this tale, I hope. Here my outlining slowed down again, because let's be honest, a trial it could very easily be the entire short story if I'm not careful. So I just kind of thought, well, uh, let's make some lists. You know, let's make the cast. Tiravam, Vo, uh, the Archpriest of Coltum, the, the Tiravam and Vo's employer and potentially the secret lover of Tiravam. You know, then we're going to have the quote-unquote Pope and their retinue uh, traveled here from the quote-unquote Vatican or whatever. And then we'll want to have kind of the rival of the archpriest, at least at the beginning, in terms of arguing that, you know, you guys don't deserve the relic. This is nonsense. The saint didn't want to be here. So, yeah, that would be the priest of a nearby village with a rival saint or relic, perhaps, who feels competitive with the Temple of Coltum. Then, in no particular order, I just made a list of things that I feel definitely have to happen in this. The most obvious one being that the quote-unquote pope renders their decision. At another point, Tiravam will be questioned about the theft, of course wanting to increase the value of the relic by puffing up the story of the theft that we just were privy to in the previous quarter of the story. Bo's expertise, quote-unquote, will be called upon probably more than once, and I really like the idea of Bo just stumbling in here and there and everywhere, and maybe even Tiravam's like, don't you think you mean blah? And then Bo gets annoyed and is like, no, I meant blah blah, and then they kind of start arguing and some priest can be like, you're both wrong about scripture. <laughs> Naturally, you've got to have the rival clergyman from the nearby town act as a kind of prosecutor, and you've got to have the archbishop of the big temple of Coltum acting as kind of defense of this whole thing. Given the whole situation, arguments could be as much about quoting scripture at each other as anything else, and as I say, the whole idea of people getting it wrong and arguing is great. you got to have a, you know, maybe a surprise witness, somebody who survived from the town that Vo and Tiravam just stole the relic from, maybe something that just causes chaos in the courtroom, you know? And... Perhaps uh, some kind of opening prayer or ritual, a way of getting more of the religion through. And speaking of openings, the Pope, uh, quote-unquote, and their retinue would have a pretty grand entrance, I figure. Finally, I made a short list of just kind of lies and secrets that could cause trouble, like Vo and Tiravem are strangers. Haha, ha, no, they're not. Vo is an impartial expert. No, they are not. From far away, though, I guess that's true. Tiravem is a recently frocked beetle, quote-unquote, of Coltum's temple, whose theft was motivated by piety. Nonsense, it was motivated by money. And then the fourth lie, or troublesome secret, the archpriest is breaking his vows of chastity as Tiravem's secret lover, and I've left room for a fifth thing in case I can think of it. Actually, as I say that now, I suppose the fifth lie would be that Vo is not someone who was present in the village when the theft took place of uh, the village of Melkser, town of Melkser, whatever. <laughs> and this is as far as I had gotten by this very morning of the day that I'm recording this, which is the day before I head off for the Christmas holidays, and oh man, I want to get this last episode recorded for the year. I'm so, man, oh geez, what do I do? What do I do? I gotta finish this outline. And so as my voice gets higher and higher, I explain my dilemma to my partner, who is really the hero of this episode, and she reminded me that I just need what I need to get through, and that if I have all the elements of the trial, and I have a knack for writing the actual dialogue once I get into that level and have these characters bouncing off each other, I can handle that later. This is already a pretty detailed outline, frankly. Oh yeah, I go, thank you. <laughs> 
But then I'm like, wait a minute, the miracle I have in mind, the, the fake miracle, I don't know what that's going to be. The fake miracle that proves absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt after the you know the court dissolves into a farce. I mean, I know how I want that to end, right? Is if eventually the Pope's like, you know what? Let's see what the relic thinks. Let's see if the saint is going to allow itself to be removed from this town or if it will make it clear that it wishes to remain. Well, then all of a sudden, Volunteer of M have to come up with that miracle, which is basically the miracle of the relic not wanting to move. How do they pull that off? And I just had this very simple idea in my head that Vo, with her strength and weight, could hide inside a hollow column and just hold on <laughs> deeply to the stand, essentially, that the relics are on so that nobody can remove them because nobody can out-wrestle Vo's combined you know, strength and sheer weight pulling down on the thing. But... Gosh, that feels too simple. I said to my partner, like, what if it shouldn't it be some big Ocean's Eleven thing or whatever big scheme? And she was like, no, it doesn't have to be, especially because of what happens at the very end. Kind of suggests that maybe there was some sort of miracle at place anyway. Oh, yeah. I go, oh, yeah. Maybe that's good enough. Maybe I'm just desperate. You tell me. But and that's it, really, isn't it? You know, the miracle would be pretty straightforward. And I do kind of like the idea of a subversion of like, oh, we got to come up with a big, crazy scheme. And it's like, what if we just put the heaviest, strongest part of our duo as a weight <laughs> on the relic and hide them so that people don't know that's what's happening. I like that. So the miracle is achieved. The quote unquote Pope is convinced, makes their proclamation. Maybe some deals get cut to mollify the rival town clergy. You know, like I say, maybe sending a member of prestige from the Coltoom Temple to go oversee things there, which also maybe sorts things out better for the Archbishop running the show back in Coltoom. Anyway, and then all the churchy people satisfied, bugger off. And, you know, the Archbishop is maybe the last one kind of slips some recently acquired coin from an approving crowd who loved the miracle. And we're like, yes, we will donate to this church. This is a great church. Yes, mission achieved for Archbishop. And then it's just Tiravan there left alone behind locked doors to help Vo out <laughs> from the fake column or whatever. And the two of them have a moment alone to just catch their breath. Perhaps Tiravan wonders, well, where are they going to put these friggin' arms so that nobody else steals them? And Vo's like, oh, I know where they go. And so after a whole story of Vo just constantly messing up things that they were supposed to remember from their quote-unquote studies, you know, cramming on religion and history to be the fake impartial expert of religion and history for the trial and so on and so forth, you know, she's like, oh, I remember what happens now, grabs the arms and goes over to an obscure niche in the side wall placing them in there beside another relic. Terravan was like, oh, why did they go there? And Bo's like, oh, well, you know, it's not a well-known fact, but these two were secret lovers back when they were still alive. And then there's like the suggestion of, wait, do you think maybe the, you know, the saint was actually guiding all of this and the saint really did want to be brought back to Coltoon? Bum, bum, bum. The end. All right. You know what? I like it. It's certainly good enough for an outline. And the nice thing is, by the time I come back to it, I will have had a long time to let this sit and marinate so that I can improve it. I like it. Sacred Thievery. Yeah. And now for the final listener question of 2021, sent in by Brad Spendlove. Hi, Oliver. I've written a couple sci-fi short stories. What's your advice for finding a target venue uh, to publish them for the first time? Thanks. Thanks, Brad. Good question. And I got to say, I'm not making fun here. I don't know if you put a sci-fi sound effect echo on that thing or if it just happened as a matter of general sound quality, but I'm into it. I confess I don't know enough about the sci-fi markets specifically to make you know genre-specific recommendations there, but I can point towards a useful tool or two. For example, I'm a big fan of something called the Submission Grinder. You can find that at thegrinder.diabolicalplots.com, and I will include a link to that in the show notes for the episode. There's a dumb joke about a popular dating app and maybe BDSM I can make here, but instead I will quote the great Richard Ayoade when I say... Let's not stoop to jokes. Anyway, the Submission Grinder is very much a tool for keeping track of your short story submissions, what status they're at, who they're with, what kind of response they eventually get, and it uses the statistics that people, well, it uses the data people submit to create useful statistics that I can't speak with perfect godlike authority as to how accurate they are. I mean, they're basically tea leaves to help guide you a little bit, but in my experience, at least in terms of the stats on response times, those have been very accurate. Meanwhile, the Submission Grinder, as you can imagine, doubles as a search tool for looking up markets, and you can narrow the search by genre. So you could absolutely search for sci-fi literary markets and narrow it down further by whether or not they pay or even how much they pay, and so on and so forth. You know, word count is one I usually search for because I like to see, you know, let's exclude the markets that don't have any interest in a story as big as mine. 
I know there are one or two other services like the Submission Grinder, but it's the one I'm most familiar with. It may be worth checking around to see if there's another one that you like better, or at the very least, maybe has a bigger or different database of markets, including, of course, sci-fi. I'd also recommend checking out the newsletter for AuthorsPublish.com. They have a decent newsletter that comes out regularly with lists of publishers, often being like publishers for this genre, publishers who don't want an agent, or publishers who do and are only doing westerns, or whatever. And so by that way, you can just occasionally get the newsletter and be like, oh, is this relevant to what I'm looking for? Sci-fi in your case? Yes, no, cull items from the lists, and so on. Beyond that, I can say I have had luck finding markets I didn't know about because I am part of the Whetstone Sword and Sorcery Tavern Discord, and that's a community of people all looking to submit to sword and sorcery type places, so they share lists with each other, in fact have a pinned list of like a master list of friendly markets to that kind of material in one corner of the Discord. So you may wish to look into sci-fi literary groups, whether they're Facebook, Discord, Reddit, whatever, and see if they themselves have like a master submission list, or at the very least just regular conversations about like, oh, you should check out this market, which is also a handy way to get warnings for ones that might kind of stink. So yeah, those are my three big pieces of advice to help you with your question. I hope it is helpful, and I wish you the best of luck with your submissions. If anybody listening knows of something that I have missed which might be of some use, feel free to either send it to me at so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com or tweet at me at so underscore writing, that's at so writing, and I could maybe add it to the show notes for this episode so that future listeners can you know, benefit from your wisdom. Okay, this is normally where I would wrap up what is already kind of a long episode. However, well, I'm going to indulge myself a little bit as it's the end of the year and I've achieved my goal of a new episode of this thing every single week since I launched it in mid-June. That indulgence is going to be to have a little bit of behind-the-scenes podcast talk and even a little tiny bit of personal talk from me to you. But if you are the type of person who skips the first 15 minutes of Mark Maron's WTF or otherwise just like to get to the meat and potatoes in and out of an episode, they don't really want to hear the host or hosts chat with each other for like 20 minutes about what beer they're drinking or whatever, that's cool. I get it. I'm one of those people too. So if that's the case, all you need to know is I'm really grateful for you listening. Happy holidays. Hope you have a better year next year than any of us did this year. And... There will be a break in the show. There'll be no new episodes for the first two weeks of January, potentially longer, though I hope not. Absolutely, though, the show is definitely coming back, especially because I have a few episodes in my pocket, for heaven's sakes. Okay, people who don't really care about behind-the-scenes stuff, bye, bye, bye. See you next year. Thank you, thank you. Okay, 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 okay. They're gone, or if they're not, they'll regret it real soon. So to all of you who enjoy the behind-the-scenes stuff and getting to know the host a little better as a person, cool. Thanks for hanging around. You're a better person than me. <laughs> or you just have different tastes than me, which I think by merit of the internet's uh, discourse and what it's done to all our brains means one of us has to be right and one of us has to be wrong. So yeah, first, I just want to say I'm really grateful for you listening. I'm really grateful for you sharing the show. I'm really grateful for the wonderful positive feedback that I've been getting more and more of in the last month and a half, two months, especially on a particularly rough day. It is nice when I can be like, oh, hey, look at my phone for a second, see someone being like, hey, I love the podcast. It's great. I told my brother. He likes it too now. Cool. Honest to God, has a positive effect on my mood. I love it. Everything's relative, so I won't get into the details anyway, but it really, I gotta say, it really did help me with the back end of 2021, even in this last week. Um, relative to my own lived experiences, let's say, it's been a rough one. And I even, just before this episode, basically, like, had a cool job for a week, and then the new boss I had just was like, here's a big crate of red flags, and I had to... I had to leave the job. So cool. I'm ending the year unemployed. Love it. I am looking for work. If you're a cool person offering remote work, perhaps for a researcher, that's something I do rather well for uh, production companies, looking up interviews and that kind of thing. Yeah, hit me up. <laughs> anyway, I did mention there will be something of a schedule change happening where so I can have a Christmas holiday and not to worry too hard about the podcast. There won't be a new episode on January 3rd or January 10th. I am hoping the show will return January 17th. I don't know if it will be every week or if it will be every week for a little bit and then switch to every other week or if it will start right away by being every other week. Why am I pondering every other week? Well, because somewhere in November, I definitely felt myself hitting a point that I knew was a risk with this project. I accepted that that's fine, but I hit a point where the show was taking enough work that it was making it very difficult to work on the novel, which is ironic because the main thrust of the show was to help build an audience for the novel. So I'm thinking what I might do, at least while I'm outlining the novel still, which I would like to get done before half past Doomsday, by which I mean well before June, I hope. I'm thinking the thing to do is to, yeah, go to every other week 
And in between, maybe I'll do fun, silly things on Twitch uh, while I'm writing. I don't know. I'm still figuring that out. I do know I have some ideas for Twitch, but th- I don't think they're really going to kick in until I'm writing the first draft. Now, all that being said, the bonus podcast that patrons get, so I wrote a novel, will continue to come out every single week, barring some sort of catastrophe, because, well, it's frankly less effort than this one, which was, I think, smart on my part, not lazy. (laughs) And honestly, another side effect of this would be it would allow me to sort of rebuild my buffer. I've had about a five or six week buffer of episodes until recently where I was having so much trouble outlining these last two stories. I mean, I I sort of banked some future episodes by doing a couple of interviews and a very special experimental episode. But I don't want to put any of those up until I have finished uploading episodes for each one of the stories for this quarter of the novel. I just want to keep the listening experience for people who come and find the show later to be kind of easier to follow and consistent. So, you know, let's have a chunk of story outlines, followed by once that quarter of the novel is outlined and put out to the world, a chunk of interviews for however long it takes me to physically write the outline that I will then report on in the next chunk of outline episodes back and forth until the whole thing is wrapped up. Okay, that's the schedule news. Last thing I wanted to tell you was some things to look forward to with the podcast in 2022. I guess I've kind of let a bunch of them slip anyway. Yeah, so there'll be more interviews, of course. There'll be me doing the Conanny bit and then the sort of Michael Moorcocky weird quarter of the novel. I look forward to sharing all that with you, of course, plus the experimental episode that I mentioned. I also hope to eventually be doing some fun stuff on Twitch. Well, I don't want to give away what it is for now. Let's just say if you like Twitch, maybe subscribe at twitch.tv slash so I'm writing a novel. Speaking of subscribing, you may wish to become a patron of the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel, where I will be wrapping up my reading and quote unquote DVD commentary of one chapter at a time of Junkyard Leopard, my first novel. And then I'll be moving on to my second novel of Dice and Men, a sort of nerdy coming of age story, which is very different from the horror novel or from what I've been telling you about in this podcast thus far. I also hope to do some other fun stuff on there, but that's, you know, that's the main thrust. If committing to the Patreon is a bit much or just for some reason doesn't work for you, but you want to support the show, I mean, there's always suggestions on how to do that. In fact, suggestions and links. If you just go to soimwritinganovel.com, there's a little link in the top right corner that says support. Click on there and some ideas of how you can help me out with this big endeavor. If that's something you'd like to do, do. But honestly, just listening and maybe letting me know that you like the show is wonderful unto itself. You owe me nothing. All right. Thanks again for listening in 2021. If you're listening to this in the future, I hope you are having a good time in that future because that ups the odds that maybe I'm having a good time. Wouldn't it be great if we're all having a good time? Okay, I'm getting woozy or something here. Let's get out of here, folks. See you next time. So, I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.